Hi, I'm Jane Whitney. Welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. On every episode, we bring together diverse voices from across the nation to discuss the most pressing and controversial issues of our time, issues that make a difference in your life. On July 25th, I met a panel of rising young stars who shared their stories about how to achieve success in the bright lights of America's celebrity culture. We're living in a time when celebrity is king, when more people know what Britney Spears is doing than can name a single justice on the Supreme Court, and when a Hollywood actor nicknamed The Rock gets more hits on social media than the first female vice president of the United States. But a new generation is channeling that fixation on fame, not to promote themselves, but to tackle problems that plague our nation. And when it comes to using the power of celebrity for good, nobody does it better than the dynamic and diverse women we're honored to have with us today. Joining us are Jerusha DeFord, activist and granddaughter of the late Billy Graham. Deja Fox, activist and founder of the Gen Z Girl Gang. Daniela Pierre Bravo, TV producer and Know Your Value contributor. Kristen Tate, political analyst, author, and columnist for The Hill. I just want to say we are so excited about this show. People have been asking what we're going to talk about. And what we're going to talk about is the fact that we are living in a culture that is marinating in celebrities. And yet you all are using your platforms for good. You are trying to strengthen the country and your communities. And we want to talk about how you got to that place. So Deja, I'm going to start with you. Six years ago, you were in Tucson, Arizona, and you were 15 at that point. I think, and you were homeless. Now you have a national profile as a reproductive rights activist. You've worked with Vice President Kamala Harris. You've been profiled in Rolling Stone. You're all over the place. And you're also a straight A student at Columbia University. So my question to you is, are you an overachiever? And how did you actually do all this in six years? Right. So I think that the question I get most often is sort of this, how did it all come about? And when I reflect, I was working at a gas station up until just about three years ago. Um, And, you know, you can kind of imagine the whirlwind experience of then becoming the first in my family to go to a school like Columbia University and on a full ride at that, taking a year off to be the youngest staffer on the Kamala Harris campaign and across any of the 2020 presidential campaigns. At my level of leadership, I worked full-time as the influencer and surrogate strategist, an obvious tie-in here to how it is that we use celebrity and influence uh, to create change. Um, But I think when I really uh, get to the core of how it is that I've gotten to where I am, uh, the answer is sisterhood. Uh, And this idea that when I do better, others do better. And that women, particularly other women of color, have invested in me, organizers, counselors, teachers, uh, saw my potential and pushed me to see it too. Uh, and that that value is really at the center of the organization I started, Gen Z Girl Gang, which is all about redefining sisterhood for this new generation that is more interconnected than ever before. But let's go back to when you were 16 in that town hall meeting with then-Senator Jeff Flake, right, was your senator at that point, and you stood up with this confidence and just exuding this power and this strength, and you took him on. As a Planned Parenthood patient and someone who relies on Title X, who you are clearly not, why is your right to take away my right? The audience loved it. You basically said, why do you oppose 
funding to Planned Parenthood? Why would you deny me the right to birth control? Why are you denying me the right to the American dream? So you're 16 at that point. That's right. You're, you're very mature now, okay? But you were 16. How at that point in your life, is that just the way you were wired? How did you have that confidence? You know, that confidence to tell my story, to stand in front of what would then be millions of people online and share some of the most intimate details about my experiences with homelessness and birth control and my aspirations to go on to college uh, took practice. I actually started when I was 15 advocating for sex education reform in my school district and standing in front of my school board members at these meetings with maybe 10 people in the audience and writing my story out on note cards and rehearsing and sometimes crying. Um, but it was that practice, uh, telling my story again and again and seeing the ways that my experience made me an expert to stand up not only to elected school board members, but to senators. And then, uh, you know, to take that skill to, to Capitol Hill and to lobby and to be live on CNN literally the next night. Uh, and it helped me to really understand the power of young people, right? That young people are the experts in our experiences. And though none of us have these, you know, fancy degrees or really, really, you know, prestigious titles, we are all experts in our experience. Uh, and it was with that confidence, with that assurance uh, that I stood in front of my senator uh, and and led with with that courage, with that vulnerability, with with my story, uh, and I've never lost that. You know, even as I've gone on to work on presidential campaigns at just 19 years old, uh, I recognized that the value that I brought right wasn't that I'd been on the campaigns the longest or that I had the most connections, but rather that I brought a perspective that was unique. And so I hope that you know the people listening uh, today take that away with them that they are an expert in their experience and that their perspective is their power. And that's the kind of confidence that I bring with me, whether it is to an Ivy League classroom or a senator's office or one day to the White House. But I have to ask you, all of us have insecurities. All of us have doubts. All of us are nervous sometimes. Did you ever, did you ever sort of question, how am I going to pull this off? How am I going to do this? Or were you just like full steam ahead? This is not a problem. Every day. Uh, this is a journey uh, that I'm on with myself. Uh, and, you know, I am still a 21 year old who forgets to eat until 2 p.m., hasn't decided her major, and cries when people are mean to me on the internet. That is just a fact. Um, and I think that that duality is something that I embrace, that I can be both a young person uh, who's learning in the public eye and this professional, that I can be a content creator and a strategist, right? And I think that at its core, as, as a Gen Zer, right, as someone who really embodies this generation, uh, I embody that duality that we bring uh, to both our professional and our personal lives, uh, because so much of it has been documented, right? We are the first generation to have our entire lives recorded and put online. Um, and so whether it's with that, that balance of confidence, but also vulnerability to say that I don't have it all figured out, uh, I try to embody the duality uh, that comes with with having a life in the public eye um, and and a life on social media. Kristen, you're also somebody who's all over the place. You're on CNN. You're on Fox Business. Your writing is found on every uh, every outlet from Newsweek to uh, the Hill, where you're a columnist. You are totally out there, and you're also somebody who's been at this for you know, some years, but not for that long. So my question to you is, you were at Emerson College. Um, you're from New Hampshire. 
How did you make this transition to to carve out this platform where people are suddenly listening to you? How did you do that? Well, first of all, Jane, thank you so much for having me on the program. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I got into all of this, this crazy political world kind of by mistake. So I grew up way up in the woods of New Hampshire in the northern part of the state on about 10 acres of land, very thrifty family, Uh, you know, grit and hard work is the name of the game up there. Uh, I have a lot of small business owners in my family. My, My stepmother owns some small restaurants and a lot of blue collar workers in my family. And when I went to, to college at Emerson, I wanted to go into film. I wanted to be a horror movie maker. So I never thought that I would get into politics. But when I got to college, I started to, to realize that people at my age saw the world a little bit differently than me. I, I noticed that... Um, my fellow students were extremely left of center, and they they held much different views than I did, particularly on fiscal matters. Uh, and so I kind of got involved in politics on the side. Ron Paul was getting very popular at the time. He was kind of gearing up for his 2012 presidential run. And I remember a turning point for me was I, I saw Ron Paul speak in 2011. And it was incredible because he filled this auditorium with all kinds of young people from all walks of life. And he got these young people there excited about ideas like ending the Fed and lowering taxes. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is incredible. I've never seen so many young people fired up about these, you know, issues that are typically thought of as kind of dry and boring. This, this is amazing. I want to be a part of this. So when I was in college, I got involved with that campaign. And then I started working for John Stossel at the Fox Business Network. And one thing kind of led to another. And uh, here I am almost 10 years later, and my goal is really to show young people particularly, so mostly the millennial generation, how the free market and the power of the individual can really unlock your full potential and how it's, it's the private sector, it's small businesses, it's community, not big government that allows us all to flourish and be the best versions of ourselves that we can be. So so my goal is always to take sort of boring ideas or ideas that we think of as sort of complex and non-tangible and really break them down and explain them to young people in a way that's not just easy to understand, but uplifting as well. Go back to that first time you were on television, the first time you were going to go on a network television show and you you were going to give your opinion about something. Do you remember, was that something that was difficult for you or did you just, again, sort of take to it and just full steam ahead? You know, for me, it's always actually been about the ideas, not the medium. So I'm very passionate about the ideas of libertarianism and small government and and government spending and and government regulation, not so much the TV or the writing or or the radio. So, So doing doing uh, interviews on those mediums to me was always sort of easy because I I didn't really care about, you know, success in television. That's never been my goal. And it's still not my goal. I don't want to run a talk show. That's, that's not my goal. So it was kind of easy for me just because it's the ideas that I've always been very passionate about. And any chance I have to spread those ideas, I jump at it. And um, for me, being a media person has never been, has never really been the end goal. So it wasn't too hard because I, I didn't feel a lot of pressure, frankly, because uh, I, I don't want a career in television. So you didn't go into this for the free haircuts and the limo service. You're in this because you <laughs> actually have a passion for telling people about fiscal restraint and smaller government and doing away with waste. You're really into those, those ideas are your passion. 
it's coming from that, that background of small business owners. I mean, the last year in particular has really validated for me what I've been doing. You know, my, my poor stepmother, she, she employs dozens of people. These are hardworking people who are working at hourly rates in the restaurant business and they all have families to feed. Right. And we had these crushing lockdowns and we can have debates about where the lockdowns justified or not. That's not really my point. My point is it was incredible over the last year to see the perseverance of, of the business owners, the small business owners, owners, but not just them, the workers that they employ. It, it was just such a trying time for them, but it was also a time where I saw incredible strength in the power of, of, of business, of small business and how important these businesses are to our communities and to families. They allow people to have pride in their work and, and people don't want to sit home and get government checks and, and not work and provide for their own families. They want to work. They want to have that pride. So the last year has been, has been devastating in certain ways, obviously for a variety of reasons, right. whether it's medical or, or economic, but, but also it's given me a lot of hope because we've seen the power of small business, the power of the free market and the power of people wanting to live out their dreams and continue to do that uh, in the face of great hardship. Daniela, the headline on your story could be from undocumented to unstoppable because um, you were growing up in the shadows, really, in small town Lima, Ohio. And you had dreams at that point. And your parents were working, I think, multiple jobs. You were one of five. You were in a, in a situation many, many families are in. You are a producer. You work with uh, Mika Brzezinski on the Know Your Value initiative that tries to empower women in the workplace. You uh, are a co-author with her on a book called Earn It. You've done all kinds of things to try and promote women and help them to know their own strengths. But back then, when you were, you were in Lima, Ohio, you were in a very different place. So how did you make that transition to where you are now? For a long time, for me, it was really about just survival. And I think, you know, if we look at the country and the fabric of the country and young people, uh, family of immigrants, immigrants, it's it's that life experience for them. And so as the oldest of five, I grew up, as you mentioned, in a small town in Ohio, in Lima, undocumented. So there were no resources for me to tap into or to even ask people, you know, what I could do. Um, and I found out I was undocumented in high school. And so going to college, um, was something that was somewhat of an impossibility. Uh, so I ended up, you know, taking a chance and applying on a paper application to a college in Ohio. I got accepted and really had to pay cash um, because I, I didn't qualify for any uh, government loans. Um, as you mentioned, my parent worked through in three jobs. So it was really a family effort in trying to make these cash payments, a lot of stress and anxiety, going to classes, doing exams and not knowing if I was going to be pulled out um, the next week. And so it was a lot of hard work, but I knew that I didn't want to be defined by my environment. So I thought, you know, in Ohio, where could I make this impossibility of working in TV happen? Because for me, it was all about telling the stories that I didn't see represented in my hometown. And um, I ended up you know, applying to everywhere and anywhere um, to unpaid internships in New York City, uh, because that's really what I could do with my situation. Right. And so I think I sent my resume to like 20 different unpaid internship places. And I hear back from one pay place, which was P. Diddy's Bad Boy Entertainment, which was his marketing agency. And they call me up. I'm studying for my exam. And they say, can you come in for an interview tomorrow? We see that you're local. I made a little white lie on my resume. And I said that I lived in New York City instead of <laughs> 
Ohio, which is where I actually was, because I didn't want the hiring managers to make excuses, Um, right? Oh, she's not from here. Oh, she's not local. And then not give me a chance for an interview. So I ended up getting on a Greyhound bus that night, 18 hours later, nine stops along the way. I get to Port Authority. I clean up, I wash, I change, and I run into the internship interview. And I ended up getting it, an unpaid role in New York City and working three side jobs that I found on Craigslist just to make, you know, uh, financially, you know, the financial uh, hardship of New York City happen. And so um, fast forward, that was the summer that I got DACA and finally, you know, made it to NBC. I'm still working on the freshening up in the Port Authority part of that story, because um, jumping on a bus for 18 hours and, and you know, and, and nine stops, uh, that's really gutsy. Did you ever have any qualms about what you were trying to do or, or somehow maybe you it wouldn't work out for you? Did you just or did you just never take no for an answer? There were so many situations where I, you know, I thought, how is this going to pan out? There's no it's impossible. And I think that the difference is everybody has fears. Um, everybody is insecure, right? We all have a pulse. We all we all feel that. But I think it's it's the going at it before you you talk yourself out of it that really makes a difference. I am, you know, family of immigrants. We roll up our sleeves and get the work done. And like I mentioned, for me, it was about survival. It was about getting my foot in the door because I knew that it wasn't just about me. It was about breaking the generational inequalities that existed that I saw growing up. And I knew that I needed to do something different and get myself in the door, even when I was scared, even when I didn't know how I was going to pan up, even if I never had been in on a Greyhound bus. And if I got to New York and I got these unpaid internship and I was still undocumented, I still couldn't do anything with it that I needed to try because you never know what's on the other side. If you're not willing to put yourself out there 150% and let the cards fall where they may. And thankfully, that was the summer that that DACA came out. But I think, you know, I, I talk about this and I write about this. It's about the right policies that give people the chance to be able to develop themselves in a way that allows them to give back. And that's certainly what I've dedicated myself towards um, these past few years. Jerusha, at this point, I want to turn to you because, in a sense, you were born into the spotlight with your grandfather, the late Reverend Billy Graham being one of the most famous uh, people in the world, I think it's fair to say. And I actually saw you uh, right before the last presidential election. And I watched you and I thought, this woman has, this woman has guts because you basically at that point were calling yourself a homeless evangelical. And what you did before the election, before the presidential election, was you broke with the evangelical community and basically became um, a pro-life, you're a very, very strong pro-life advocate uh, who supported uh, Joe Biden for the presidency. And I thought, what would that Thanksgiving be like? No, seriously, I mean, you, you, <laughs> your uncle Franklin Graham is also a very famous evan- evangelist. He was speaking at the Republican National Convention. He was talking, he was supporting uh, Mr. Trump. And here you were coming out and saying that you couldn't do that. And I guess I want to ask you how hard that was for you. You know, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I don't feel um, adequate to be on this panel after listening to the stories of the women who went before me. But, um, you know, it 
it was difficult and it wasn't. I kind of understand what some of the other panelists are saying when um, you just you just speak your truth. And um, when you do, you just kind of brace yourself for what's going to come after it. Yeah, it is different in my situation because mine um, came from my family. It's not something you can really get away from. Um, as far as I got so many questions using the same example you did, what are Thanksgiving dinners like around your house? And um, we're a very, very large family. Um, you know, large families have room for lots of opinions. Um, there is my grandmother famously said that if two people agree on everything, then one of them isn't necessary. And <laughs> I was definitely reared in my family to be necessary. And so I just try to remember her and remember that she would be proud of me for speaking um, my conviction. It, it more becomes an issue of I can't not say something. Um, then, you know, really gearing myself up to say something, even if it does uh, disagree or not align with um, a lot of my family members. I mentioned your grandfather in the introduction to you because it's a built-in curiosity. People want to know, what is she going to say? And again, that's part of this celebrity culture, that we imbue people with magical powers if, if they're well-known. Somehow they're different. But you said at one point that you felt Actually, it was sort of part of the whole gestalt of what you did, that the tug at your spirit, you talked about the tug at your spirit that propelled you forward to take this stand. And can you explain what that means to people? Yeah, sure. Um, I think a lot of people really understood the fact that, you know, especially growing up in evangelical, um, having faith be such a huge integral part of my life and being taught by the church leaders in my life and in my family, um, how one is supposed to behave, how one's supposed to think, how one is supposed to love, and then watching those same leaders not act that way or watching them do things that are so different from what I had been taught my entire life or um, supporting people in leadership that were doing the very opposite of what I had always been taught um, and read in scriptures my whole life. And so at that point, I knew there had to be other people out there that were saying, wait a minute, I, can't, I don't make sense of this. I've been told that this is what I'm supposed to be thinking and feeling and how I'm supposed to be loving my whole life. And now I'm watching the support of things that are completely opposite of what I've always been taught. And how do I make sense of those two things? And I think everyone just, you know, thought, well, I'll, I'll follow what my church or evangelical leader is saying to do, regardless of the fact that, well, wait a minute, um, we're human and we're fallible. And um, my allegiance was to Jesus and what he was saying in scriptures. And when I saw that not aligned with what a lot of evangelical leaders were saying, um, I was like, listen, my leadership, my allegiance is to them, um, to the Lord, not to um, these leaders. And I decided to say something about it. And it was really the response I got. I think a lot of people were feeling the same way. They weren't really just sure um, how to put words to it, I guess. But in fairness, 81% of white evangelicals didn't feel that tug at their spirit, and they did support Mr. Trump. And, and so- were you disappointed that more didn't make a break or did you feel that you actually had gotten the message through to some people? How did you feel after you, you really went out on a limb and talked about this? Well, at the end of the day, my goal was not, although it was important to me who was in office, that wasn't my goal. My goal was I felt like 
my faith and the evangelical world as a whole really started to have a branding problem, to be honest with you. I felt like the rest of the world looked at my faith and looked at evangelicals, very rightfully so, um, in a very different way than the Jesus that I had been reading about in scriptures. What I mean by that is if my goal was to help other Christians realize, hey, you're not alone. And um, for non-Christians and non-church people to say, hey, guess what? I'm a Christian and I support a lot of things that you wouldn't expect me to support because that's who I think Jesus was. So my end goal was more about how Jesus looks at the end of the day than who ended up in the White House. Did you ever channel your grandfather, your late grandfather, and and (laughs) think about how he would have seen what you were doing? Uh, Oh, absolutely. Um, I don't know if I channeled him, but um, knowing that he would be proud of me speaking out, um, trying to, you know, show people who Jesus was, who Jesus loved. He always said that it's uh, the spirit's job to convict. It's God's job to judge. And it's my job to love. And I just kept remembering that, that that's my goal. My goal is to just love everybody, regardless of who they are, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of their race or their sexual orientation. I'm going to love them because I know that that's what Jesus would do. And my grandfather showed me that. How was Thanksgiving last year for you? (laughs) Well, you know, COVID saved us um, all from a lot of uh, maybe uncomfortable interactions. So that was a... (laughs) Uh, Deja, I want to get back to you because when I was listening to you talk about this strengthening the sisterhood and trying to perpetuate the collaborative spirit as opposed to a competitive spirit, how did that become to found the the Gen Gen Z girl gang? How did that become part of your platform? Well, I think to understand how this how this value uh, was incorporated incorporated into the work that I do, you have to understand where I grew up, right? I grew up in a household like so many across the nation uh, that didn't have enough, right? I was on Section Eight food stamps. I grew up with a single mom who didn't graduate college, bounced between jobs, uh, and by the time I was fifteen, I experienced homelessness. And in that sense, I grew up in a community. That because there wasn't enough, we had to share. We had to we had to invest in one another, um, and so the ideas of collaboration uh, were never foreign to me. Right, uh, this idea of if I have food in the fridge and enough to feed someone else, we have enough. Uh, these ideas of solidarity were baked into my uh, into my upbringing, sort of by necessity, and into my politic because my life has always been political and that the, the decisions being made outside of my control were dictating what I was eating and where I was living. Um, and even, you know, when I, when I went on to experience homelessness at 15, uh, it was about relying on community that a family of Mexican immigrants at that, uh, were the ones who took me in who, though they didn't have much had enough for me. Um, and so when I went on to college, when I started to form a community, uh, after being uprooted from my hometown, Uh, I knew that at the center of that community had to be this idea of collaboration, uh, of of tied success um, and of solidarity and sisterhood. Uh, And when I look at my vision for the future, I know that we cannot replicate the vision of success that we've seen, uh, particularly older, rich white men uh, emulate, right? That is predicated on oppression, but instead that for women like me to be successful, that, that is tied to collaboration, that it's pulling each other up, not pushing each other down. You've already declared, I think, that you want to be, you're going to run for president. 
I will be president one day, uh, that when I say it, I believe it. And when I believe it, other people believe it. Uh, and I understand the value of that representation, of standing up and declaring my own ambition and the ways that that makes space for other, other young people to do the same thing. You know, when I worked on the Kamala Harris campaign, I got to lead uh, an aspect, a uh, social media activation uh, around this is what a president looks like, all about representation, seeing yourself represented. Um, and so, you know, I, I know that when I stand here and I say not only that I want to be or, or rather that I, I plan to be, um, that I make space for others to do the same. Kristen, but I've heard you talk on the air during an interview about the fact that you believe people uh, your age think that politics, actually quite a few people of all ages think that politics, our politics are broken and that they have absolutely no time for these culture wars that are going on, a lot of these social issues that are designed to rile people up. Talk about that a little bit. What I see is a great deal of the country focused on bickering about issues that really aren't that important and really missing the very critical issues that keep society moving forward. Uh, if you ask me, the Republicans, the Democrats, there's really not much difference between those two parties right now. Yeah, the rhetoric might be a little bit different, but no matter who's in office, we're still policing the whole world. We're still blowing out the federal spending every month. Uh, and it's just pathetic. So I think that a strong culture and society is driven by a robust economy. Uh, and, and so what I view as, as a strong society is one where we lift people up and we, we promote the values of hard work, of entrepreneurism, and of small business. Uh, you know, I, I think that right now, if we continue down this path that we're on with, with spending, this country is going to be bankrupt for generations to come. You can't just foolishly spend trillions of dollars every month without any consequences. And I'm not just talking about Joe Biden, by the way. I'm talking about Donald Trump, too. They're they were both very bad. Uh, and so I think that young people in particular, we tend to get caught up in these in these little social issue battles. But really, we're missing what will make our entire society more strong, which is, is really creating a more robust economy. And what's really interesting, Jane, is when you talk about these, these issues like fiscal responsibility and spending, you realize there's actually a lot of overlap between people who identify as Democrats and Republicans. And that when you talk to a lot of young people and working young people, um, there is a lot of common ground there when you, when you focus on these issues, particularly of the economy. And that's how I think we get things done. But the way our political system is set up, uh, the people in power have an incentive to keep us bickering, to keep us hating each other and focused on these issues that I really don't think are, uh, you know, what we should be focused on right now. You're so young to be that cynical, Kristen, but okay, let me ask you something else then. <laughs> According to Pew Research, Millennials and Gen Z folks really would like the government to do more. The, the latest polls show that 64% of millennials would like to see more government services. Now, I have to ask you as a libertarian or a concert, what, what, what is a concertarian or a conservatarian? You're, conservatarian. You call yourself both Conservatarian. Things. Conservatarian. Yes, so like okay, it doesn't roll off my tongue. All right, yeah. I like a very hands-off approach on both social issues and fiscal issues. I think that um, societies do best 
when uh, people are kind of left alone and we don't try to control other people. And yes, of course, I believe in a safety net system for folks who need a temporary hand up. Uh, of course, I believe in that. What I don't believe in is trying to control everybody from the top down. I thought the last year of lockdowns and mask mandates were, were terrifying for a variety of reasons and they crushed small business. I mean, you want to talk about uh, uh, small business being crushed, Amazon and Walmart, they loved these lockdowns. They flourished during these lockdowns where the, the mom and pop guys, they got killed. Daniela, talking about the dreamers and uh, being a dreamer and listening to what Kristen was talking about, how, how does that mesh with your sort of worldview as to the government has helped the dreamers? Talk about what being in that program has meant to you and what happened when President Obama implemented it back in 2012. Yeah, I mean, I remember that moment like it was yesterday and I think that any DACA recipient will tell you exactly what they felt, what they saw in that moment. And I remember being um, at my unpaid internship in New York City and uh, my mom texting me that day uh, in June and saying, turn on the TV right now. And I'm like in this little office, I can't, there's no TV in sight. So I run out the door into this little deli in the corner. And on the corner, there was this TV and President Obama was delivering the address on DACA. And I didn't even know people like me existed that were in the shadows. And you can imagine that life-changing moment um, from then on out, because you have to understand everything that we were doing could have been in vain. You know, even getting to college, that was an impossibility that we couldn't pay for, that you know, all of these different barriers, all of it could have been for nothing. And that was a real turning point. But I think going back to this larger point on the politicization of everything, it's really important to understand that it took me a while to understand that my identity as a DACA recipient was not a burden. And growing up in a small town, mostly white, as the only Latina, I buried a lot of parts of my identity because I didn't want to feel like the other. And it's actually the title of my second book, which is coming out in the spring. But seeing yourself in the eyes of somebody else limits you and shrinks you and mutes you because you're constantly trying to chameleon your way around in order to fit a box or a stereotype. And it took me a lot of undoing to understand that this constant striving as needing to prove myself, needing to feel worthy in the eyes of others, is actually limiting who I am and that I'm much more than that part of my identity. How optimistic are you about the future of DACA? Jane, the only thing that keeps me going is optimism, whether I believe it or not. Um, but we've been here. It's a roller coaster. Uh, for the past nine years, it's been a roller coaster. And so there's nothing else that you can do but put your blinders on and just keep going the day to day, take it one day at a time and not limit yourself. If I were to say, you know, realistically, what are the chances of this being rescinded forever or, or actually creating a pathway to legalization in Congress? I would I would make myself go crazy. So, you know, you take it one step at a, one step at a time, one day at a time. You do the best you can and uh, you put your blinders on when you can. Jerusha, part of what you did when you were speaking out before the election was, in a sense, try to redefine what pro-life actually means. You talked about various policies that you found more that were not compassionate, family separation, some of the immigration policies, that, that uh, if you're going to be pro-life, you have to care about climate crisis. 
Do you think people think in those terms or, or do you think they're starting to think in those terms? I like to believe they're starting to think in those terms. Um, you know, I, I almost shriek a little bit when you say that I'm pro-life because what that means to so many people um, versus what it means to me. Um, what it means to me is, you know, from uh, birth to the grave um, in all different facets. Um, I think what has happened so often is that we we fight so much for the unborn. And then when they cease to be unborn, um, we turn our backs. Um, I think we turn our backs on the mothers who choose life. Um, I think that all of the policies that you just listed, um, I think statistics show us that if you can improve healthcare, if you can improve poverty, if you can improve all of those things, that the abortion rates actually go down. And so for me, you know, I, when I was a young teenager, I remember thinking, you know, if I'm going to be pro-life, I also need to be pro-foster care and I need to be pro-adoption and I need to be pro all of the things that are leading these young mothers to feel like this is a decision that they have to make. Um, and so I hope that the term pro-life is starting to take a little bit of a turn to mean the whole person and um, really fighting for the mothers and fighting for the children once they are born, because what was happening is, you know, we, the, the people who are most um, outspoken about being pro-life, um, I don't really see a lot of work on any other issue. I see a lot of um, yelling and I see a lot of uh, social media posting, but I don't see a lot of um, foster care. I don't see a lot of helping in um, impoverished communities. And all of those things to me encapsulate being pro-life. People make assumptions about you when, when they hear that you're pro-life. That, that's a hot button label. Is that just your experience all the time, that people just assume that you're one of the screamers? Um, I, yeah, a, a little bit. Um, I, I think as soon as they have a conversation with me or read something that I wrote, they have a different perspective because they'll see how I think about it a little bit differently than others. Um, I just think that when I say I'm pro-life, that's um, a personal decision. Um, and it's not something that I would ever push on anybody else. I feel pretty strongly about that. But also, Jane, I mean, there are a few things that I can say. I put my money where my mouth is. I did foster care for eight years. Um, I adopted a child out of the foster system. Um, all of the children that I did foster care for went back to their mothers. I was very pro-reunification. These are mothers who chose life under really difficult circumstances, and I wanted to support them in every possible way that I could. So I will say that that is the issue that um, I hear about the most, especially from, um, you know, other evangelicals. I think, unfortunately, it's an issue that a lot of evangelicals use kind of as a um, as an excuse. Um, I think that being pro-life is what allows them to, you know, put their head down in the pillow at night and ignore all the other issues um, that I don't feel like you can ignore. You can't um, look at these things in such an encapsulated way. We have a video question at this point that is from a Gen Z student, and I'd like all of you to take a crack at it, but Deja, I'm going to ask you to take it a crack at it first, and we're going to look at it right now. Here it is. I'm Max Porter, a rising high school senior from Connecticut. Today, it is truly difficult to find an unbiased news source. This prevalence is undoubtedly contributing to the nation's divide. As a news podcast producer, what advice do you have on uniting, not dividing? There you go, Deja. That's an easy question. How do, how do we start to try and unite people? 
I can understand that now more than ever, right? Young people are getting their news online. They're getting their news on social media. I'm, I'm one of them. Um, and I think in some ways there's a benefit to this, right? We are getting stories like never before. Uh, we are allowing people to tell their, their stories, their narratives, be the own, their own, um, to, to lead on the issues that they are most impacted by, right? We think about the difference of 10 years ago when cable news networks got to decide whose story was told and whose wasn't. Whereas now on TikTok, someone can hop on with a story time uh, and millions of people overnight will hear their truth. Um, and so I'll, I'll start by saying that the democratization of storytelling via social media is incredibly important, right? It allows us not only to, to put those people who are most affected at the forefront, but also to, to empathize, to create connections and uh, meet people in a human way, in a way that we never have before. And so when I think about where it is that we're getting news uh, and where we should be getting it from, uh, I think that this emphasis on unbiased um, and, and more buttoned up is actually the wrong direction, and rather that we have more access to one another, to the forefront um, of movements, to live streaming protests than ever before, uh, and that it's worth leaning into uh, while still being mindful of the spread of misinformation. Kristen, you alluded to this a few minutes ago when you were talking about common ground based on young people caring about a strong economy and obviously getting good jobs. But, but this whole notion, whether or not you're a podcast producer or, or you know, a Gen Z student, of we're living in a culture where people do make assumptions. They, they make assumptions based on what party you vote for. They make assumptions based on many different variables that have nothing to do with who you are as a person. So we're having a long form conversation today and we've thrown out a lot of hot button issues that we don't have time to develop or debate today. This is really your forum to hear about what you're doing with your platform. But I would assume that you have some ideas about how you think people could become um, more receptive to being uh, united or listening to other people. What do you think? Sure. So I actually have a very different view than the previous panelist. I think social media is destroying civility in this country. I, my advice to every young person and to myself, I need to remember this more, is turn off your phone. Get off Twitter, get off Facebook and start interacting with people in real life. Because I'll tell you what, Jane, when people get behind these keyboards, they say things to other people that they would never say to their faces. People are so nasty online because being online dehumanizes people. So I, I tell that to people all the time. It, it's, you know, I think the real progress in terms of civility and getting along and, and breaking through those party divides is, is really interacting with your real life friends your family, your community face to face and, and unplugging, go for a walk outside, go for a hike, go to the beach, whatever it is, whatever makes you happy and fills you with joy with other people who enjoy doing those same things. And I think we need to just take a step back, take a breath, unplug and get back to living real life. And I believe that is how we will have a happier, more productive society where we can all get along and build those bridges. Do you think that's going to happen? Um, I actually believe there's a chance the pendulum could swing back in the other direction. You know, I think the up and coming generation uh, could 
start unplugging a little more. I, I, I see it happening in my own family. I have a younger brother who just graduated from college and he deleted Facebook off his phone. He's not on Twitter anymore. People are exhausted with this stuff, especially after a year of being cooped up in their rooms during the lockdowns. People want real life experiences. You will never be able to substitute real relationships with online, you know, talking to people online all the time. It's just not the way humans are meant to interact with each other. Daniela, well, where do you net out on this? There, there's another side where you could argue that social media is a way, the only way a lot of people have of connecting, and it can do a lot of good. It can spread good information as opposed to disinformation. I know that you're active in digital online platforms. Well, how do you feel about what Kristen just said? Right. I mean, I think also I have the background of being the producer for a three-hour live news show. So I think in the context of this, we just got to be very specific about what we're talking about. If we're talking about debating rhetoric and, and ideologies on social media, it is very different than talking about, you know, putting news stories that are actually factually based and unbiased. And, you know, the first thing I think about is this past year and how much misinformation there has been on COVID and the vaccines. And on the other part is, of course, social media is great. I think, you know, I, I can't I can't tell you how many uh, different partnerships and different uh, connecting I've done in this last these last uh, this last year um, that have been for the better in terms of getting out stories of people that wouldn't have had their stories told otherwise if it wasn't for the connection and the synergy that comes from being connected online. Um, but of course, everything needs a little bit of boundaries, right? I think this past year has taught us that, but I just think we have to be specific on what we're talking about in terms of news value versus, you know, unbiased media and, and the sort of social fighting that goes into Twitter, uh, because I think they're very different. In terms of the United people getting along better and, and bringing people together, what do you have to say on that score? Do you have any theories as to how we could try and do a better job of that in this country? Well, it's interesting that you say that because my colleague, Kat Rakowski, wrote a great piece. Uh, she's Asian-American. And uh, she wrote a piece for Know Your Value um, that we actually had her on from, on Morning Joe for. And it was somebody who, when she was younger, had called her names because of her um, ethnicity and had been, uh, you know, made her high school experience horrible. And when everything came out with um, this past, this past year with AAPI hate, uh, she actually reached back out to that um, high school classmate and really was very open and um, raw in terms of how she felt and, and how that affected the way that she saw herself and didn't know how he was going to respond, right? They, she reached out to him on a Facebook message and she did it very cordially, but spoke her truth. And, you know, she didn't know if he was going to go back at her and yell at her and, you know, be vicious about it. But it was an opportunity where, if she wouldn't have otherwise told her truth and connected in a way on, on social, that it wouldn't have had the impact that it did, which was he, you know, he apologized and they actually ended up having a conversation for a few hours on, on, you know, what a different person he had been back then from now. And that completely healed her. And she shared that story because it was it was a great example of how sometimes we just need a little bit more empathy and we need to be able to be understanding with other people. And, you know, I think that when you go on social and you are just ready to say your side of the story and are not open to the possibilities of different views and different perspectives, that's when we get into trouble. Jerusha, I know you have I think you have six children. 
how how do you deal with these these negative messages that are coming at us from all sides? You know, listening to the previous panelists, I think a lot of these women are are saying actually a lot of the similar things. Um, we're just saying it in different ways. The message I hear from everybody is that you just need to hear another person's story. And that's what I've always encouraged um, my children to do. I mean, some of the biggest hot, even some of the hot issues we've talked about today, my mind has been changed sitting down in front of somebody else who lived a different story, had a different journey and had a different view than I did for very, you know, um, understandable reasons and listening to their story and where they came from and how it differed from mine always changed my opinion, at least brought me to a place where I could understand where they were coming from. My daughter recently, who embarrassingly enough is Deja's age, um, had an issue with something um, with a friend. And I just said, you know, you've just got to sit down and recognize that she was born into a different family than you were. She has a different socioeconomic status than you do. She has a different race than you do. And all of those experiences have created who she is and why she's where she's at right now. And you've got to bring that understanding into um, any issue that you're conversing about with somebody. And so to answer your question, I hope that I model that to my children and encourage them that loving others and hearing others and showing empathy to others is first and foremost, and everything else will just kind of trickle out of that. And what I'm trying to encourage my children at least to do is I'm not going to be naive enough to think that they're just going to turn off their social media, although some of them have. Um, I have many times, um, just kind of for a break to just experience life with the people I'm living with, as Kristen was saying. I think there's a balance. And so just encouraging that balance, um, it's difficult. I think we all struggle with balance and everything in our lives. But um, to try to encourage that you can go too far one way, you can go too far the other way, and both have good if you use them in the right way. Deja, I am going to ask you to speak up because you obviously are, you've been billed as like the social media maestro, and, and that's a big part of what you're doing. You believe whether somebody has one follower, that would be me, or a million followers, I would assume that is you, that they have the power to make a difference. Talk about that a little bit. My background is as a community organizer, right? I started out organizing my peers around sex education reform in a small town in my own school district. And at that core is relational organizing, the idea that the people who care about me will care about what I care about. Uh, and that is how we build movements, right? And my idea, as a Gen Zer, is that digital relational organizing uh, is the future, that we have cultivated real relationships online. I know I have. My community, Gen Z Girl Gang, actually just met for the first time in real life for, although we've worked together for the last two years virtually, uh, and the sisterhood there was undeniable. And so this idea that we can connect with people who otherwise we may never have had access to, people with different stories, different backgrounds who grew up uh, across the world, um, and that because we have increased access to people who are different than us and the ability to build relationships with them online, we then are able to mobilize those relationships to create change. Um, and this is my theory in terms of digital relational organizing online. Um, and I believe that social media is never the end goal. It's a tool uh, and that it is a fact of life and that this pandemic has showed us that uh, though we were already making the move toward digital, we've absolutely been pushed there further and quicker than we could have imagined, and that young people, Gen Z, are leading that change. 
uh, and that we have to accept that reality and find ways uh, to utilize this tool to really create connections and use it as a as a community building tool um, and and one that can can push change. I want to ask you one one last thing about your platform, which is possibly your presidential platform when you run, which is you have a platform that's based on choice. Explain the range and the breadth of what that means to you. This concept of choice is at the core of who I am and what I do, right? And it's not just the choice if and when to have children, but the choice to go on to college. And so when we really get down to it, to its core, uh, choice uh, to me, is what it looks like to empower communities. Uh, to empower them with choice is to give them access, is to create uh, equitable access to the things that we all need to live happy and healthy lives, uh, and to build communities where people not only, like I said, choose if and when to have children, but to raise them in thriving and safe communities free from police brutality and family separation and poverty. Um, and so for me, reproductive justice. Uh, is the framework through which I work, uh, which means, again, uh, that broad framework of, of looking at people's whole lives um, and encouraging each and every one of us through systemic change to be able to make choices uh, that help us reach our full potential and therefore help us empower our communities. And, you know, I think about it in my own life, the power of choice uh, to fight for sex education because my school district wasn't providing it, and I knew I wouldn't get it as, at home as someone who didn't have parents in my life. To fight for the choice to have birth control because I had to live with my boyfriend, uh, but I wanted to go on to college. Uh, the choice to then to do that, to make that leap, to move to New York City, become the first in my family to attend an Ivy League university on a full ride, and then work to be a presidential staffer at just 19. And that is the story of choice. That because I owned my body, because I had power over myself, I had power over my future, and now I'm able to empower my communities with that same choice. Kristen, that sounds sort of libertarian-ish. There's a, there's a lot of freedom that, that Deja was talking about just, just now. I think that in listening to all of you, I'm hearing that the choice and freedom to make our own decisions clearly is central to what, where you think things should be headed. How much hope for the future do you have in terms of young people really taking up a mantle or a banner to, to improve the country? Well, look, I think we're at a, a crossroads in our country right now. And I think we could go one way or the other. And I think uh, young people will be an integral part of deciding which way we go. Are we going to become a failed state with uh, you know, top-down control of everything, crippling tax rates where it's impossible to buy a house or start a business? Are we going to be a country with choice, as our former panelist was just talking about, where you know that includes school choice, that includes the choice to, to buy a home on a middle-income salary, right? I will say uh, that part of what will determine which way this country goes is our education systems. And, uh, you know, when I sit on here and talk to you on TV, I don't view myself as a hero or anything. I think the heroes are the people out there making the country move forward. The people with dirt on their hands, the construction workers, the engineers, the doctors. And we need a strong education system in this country to produce people who keep the country moving forward. 
And uh, I do have hope to your original question because I see so much innovation within young people. I see so much drive and creativity. So I just hope that can be channeled in a way that uh, produces a really bright future for this country for generations to come. Leave it to you to be able to wrap up an incredibly interesting and complex show. And I want to thank all of our guests today for personifying how we all have the power to make a difference in our communities and our country. And of course, for donating their time and talent today. You were fabulous. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today here in the other Washington, Washington, Connecticut. Until we see you back here next time for Common Ground, I'm Jane Whitney. Take care. I'm your host, Jane Whitney, with heartfelt thanks to you for joining us. Thanks as well to our distinguished guests for helping us to see a complex issue through a different lens as our hope of finding common ground goes on. For more information on this podcast or to watch the broadcast version of Common Ground, visit ctpublic.org forward slash common ground.